0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in broadcast journalism, learning more about it, especially the management and oversight side of this industry then this is the episode for you because my next guest has spent decades overseeing the content that is created, that's been acquired and aired on a whole variety of television networks. But before I introduce you to Travis Mitchell, the Senior Vice President and Chief Content Officer at Maryland Public Television, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and it gives you an exclusive window into the episodes and the professions and the professionals that we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at timethenumber4coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, Because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Travis Mitchell, the senior vice president and chief content officer at Maryland Public Television, where he oversees all content that is acquired, that's created and aired on this statewide public television network. Travis has decades of media experience, and he most recently served as the chief content officer for the University of North Carolina Television, where he provided editorial vision for the programming that's broadcast on UNC's four TV channels and on its online properties earlier in his career. Travis served as president of Communities in Schools of Wake County. That's a Raleigh, North Carolina-based nonprofit that's actually part of a national network helping public schools to remove barriers that put students at risk of wasting their potential. He also served as executive vice president and chief operating officer for the Atlanta-based Black Family Channel, where he oversaw a $40 million operating budget, and a team of 75 professionals. Travis, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated in North Carolina and ready to go?
1: I'm caffeinated and I'm ready to go.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, we should let our listeners know you are currently sort of trying to commute between where you have been living in North Carolina and where you will be working and are working now in terms of telecommuting in Maryland. And that's why you are still in North Carolina because you started actually during the coronavirus.
1: Isn't that right? I did. I started about seven days before COVID-19 and the shutdown in Maryland and it was Maryland and North Carolina. So then in between moving my family up from North Carolina, I left UNC-TV. My last day was on February 25th. And I started Maryland Public Television on February 26th. That's the day of the president's first, one of his first briefings on COVID-19, I believe. And then seven days later, we began the process of teleworking. So I decided to, it would be safer to come back to North Carolina and telework from here until returning to Maryland in August with my family. Gotcha. Okay.
0: Well, ever since the coronavirus started shutting things down here in the US, I've been doing more of an audible timestamp during T4C interviews to let our listeners know when I was having this virtual networking coffee with my guests, because there are some interviews that I did earlier this year prior to the coronavirus or even last year in 2019 that don't talk about the coronavirus or... What's been happening even more recently in our country, Travis, ever since the murder of George Floyd at the knee of a white police officer in Minneapolis. And I reached out to you, Travis, to do this interview today, specifically because of that other disease the disease of racism that has been festering, sometimes overtly and sometimes under the surface here in the United States. And we are doing this interview now on June 18th, the day before Juneteenth. And it's in the midst of the nationwide Black Lives Matter demonstrations that are going on in support of defunding the police as a means to achieve more accountability against police brutality in this country. And Travis, as I mentioned to you before we started this interview, I've been reading a lot of posts on LinkedIn, and one you wrote recently really stopped me in my tracks. And you began the post this way, I am a 49-year-old African American media executive. And you and I just discussed you turned 50 yesterday, so happy belated birthday. But when you wrote this Thank you. you were you were 49. And you said, I have used LinkedIn as a platform to grow a very diverse professional network. But today I want to share my truth. If all lives matter, why can't I breathe? Travis, could you please share with our young listeners why you can't breathe?
1: Thank you for giving me this platform to express my feelings on the subject matter And I will say to you and to your listeners that my professional journey has been one of holding my breath for decades because you want to make sure that the feelings and the experiences that you've had don't derail your opportunities for upward mobility. I've always been a fighter for justice, but the experiences of the last several weeks reminded me That George Floyd could have been me. And here's why. I have had experiences where right after getting my license at 16 up to my 49th birthday or my 50th birthday yesterday, I have been profiled racially by police officers. I have been pulled over more than twenty five times for ride, driving in luxury cars or vehicles that they appeared to believe that only drug dealers could have. I have been in a situation where at the advanced age that I am now, in terms of certainly I'm older than my teenage years, where simply walking with another fifty plus year old African American with gray hairs in a community that we live in, work in and shop in, I have been surrounded by four police officers during an early morning walk who have brandished weapons and asked us what we were doing. Understanding full well that if I took out my black Samsung phone with an Otter box, that it could be misinterpreted as a gun. So you, at those moments, you think, I need to get home to my family. And so you learn how to survive. I have been stopped on a highway headed to South Georgia. We were going through South Carolina to pick up my seven-year-old daughter from her aunt and uncle's house in a very isolated stretch of I-85 when a police officer stopped me because I was driving a rental car and suggested that rental cars had been the carriers of drugs through the I-85 corridor. And so he asked me if I was carrying drugs and um, searched through my car. I have experienced being pulled over when test driving a luxury vehicle in my hometown area of Raleigh, Cary, North Carolina area, the Raleigh-Durham area, and having the salesman in the passenger seat with the dealer tags on the back of the car only to be stopped by a police officer, only assigned to that park to come up to the passenger side with his hand on his gun and to ask the salesman if everything were all right, as if I stole the car and then suffered through the indignity of him saying that the dealer tag was on the wrong side of the car. And he gives me a ticket as opposed to the dealer. So I have been in situations where had it turned out just a bit Differently, It would be me with a knee on his neck and not being able to return home to my family. And so the George Floyd situation caused me to have a moment of truth where I thought it was important for people who may assume that because I had had a level or measure of professional success, that I was somehow different from George Floyd but my american story is every much as a part of his life experience as anything else and so i share with those who have been accosted by police officers the pain the agony and at sometimes the shame of being treated with a level of disrespect and lack of dignity and yet still having to navigate life to provide for your family, and to do your professional best at work. This builds up a level of frustration and anger on the inside that has to be released, otherwise you will explode. Thus, the reason for me quoting Langston Hughes's brilliant piece where he asked the question, what happens to a dream deferred? Fortunately for me, I've been able to accomplish many of the things that I've wanted to accomplish, but it's always been because there are others who have paid a price for me to be able to have access to opportunity. And at this age of 50, I want to make sure that my daughter and her generation, she's a first year freshman student at Morgan State University, my alma mater. I want to make sure that by sharing my truth, it can shine a light on the fact that This is not an isolated incident with George Floyd, but this is something that we face on a consistent basis in the African-American community that has to be dealt with and rooted out of our system.
0: Thank you so much for writing that post and for sharing this with me and with so many others, Travis, as a White woman who has lived a very privileged life in so many ways. I want to preface everything I say from here on out by saying the last thing that I want to do is to offend you in any way. If I say anything that has an undertone or could be misconstrued, please let me know because, you know, these are very fraught times. And I mentioned to you before we started recording that I feel like my eyes have been opened in a way that they had not been before. And I can't really explain why. I don't know if it's because of the coronavirus or just my age. I'm 56. And even though we've had so many people, so many black Americans who've been killed at the hands of law enforcement, and we've had video before now and all of those things. But I said to you, Travis, that I feel remiss and disappointed in myself that I had not asked my African-American friends prior to now what it has been like for them in the workplace, what it has been like for them just living. And you shared something with me based on the town hall that you said you just had a couple of days ago at Maryland Public Television. Would you mind sharing that with our listeners?
1: Sure. And part of why I wanted to open up on LinkedIn and what I shared with my colleagues at Maryland Public Television is that in order to be able to have an honest conversation it means that we have to take the mask off and we have to be vulnerable. And I share it with them and I share it with you that I am not okay right now. My family is not okay. And what I mean by that is this. We are dealing with a level of toxic stress that is very difficult to put our fingers on. I've reached a place where as a professional, it's very difficult for me to consume evening news because the pain that the broadcast evokes in me is untenable. It has reached a level where old wounds are being opened up. And some of the things that I am seeing and hearing, it's like pouring salt in those wounds. And so you are trying to manage through working through the COVID-19 crisis where African-Americans are more susceptible because of preexisting conditions my father stepfather is with me and he has pre-existing conditions so we have to manage through and be very careful with how we are interacting with people so this moment of isolation also create an opportunity for you to meditate on or fixate on past injustices when you see current atrocities and so it is vitally important for me to share with my colleagues that This is a moment where I am needing to go through a period of healing. This is a moment where I need them to understand that I don't need them to relate to me as an African-American man. I need them to relate to me as a human being. And so in as much as this has affected me personally, I also know that it has affected our nation and people who are not African-American in a very deep and profound way. Each one of us is carrying a level of trauma because of what we saw play out on television and what we are trying to face as a nation. My hope is that at this particular moment in time, it seems to me that the conversations are more honest, more open, and it is forcing us all to deal with the fact that we actually Have an American problem, not just an African American problem with police. There is something in our system. There is something in the DNA of this nation that is leading to racial disparity and inequities. And we are going to have to commit to bringing our nation together by having honest, truthful, and authentic conversations. And so, with that, I will share with you what I also share with my colleagues. I am not worried about being offended or people saying politically incorrect things when they are speaking from the heart. And you only know what you know. You don't know what you don't know. And so likewise, if we're going to have a serious debate and conversation, we're going to have to let people be people. And we're going to have to stop judging people on maybe making a misstatement and really get to the root to why they were saying what they were saying and what did they mean. And only through that shared experience do we create safe spaces for authentic dialogue that can help edify and build us up as a nation as opposed to tearing us apart. I had been thinking to raise race with my friends, to
0: ask them about, gee, you know, how are things going? Have you been racially profiled by the police? And I'm talking about just on an average day before all of this happened. I mean, that is such a question from like, it's raising something that is painful. And I just want to be with them as a human being. right? But in a professional context, how can young people of color, young black Americans who are in the professional environment, navigate the microaggressions
1: Hmm.
0: that will come their way? And I'm certain that you can offer an example that you yourself have experienced on any given day.
1: Sure. I think it's not easy. And African-Americans may not feel like opening up as I did. They may not want to have the conversation. They may not feel ready to have the conversation. So what I would encourage you to do is when you ask your questions of your colleagues and you want to know how they're doing, just ask them, how are you? You don't have to preface it. You don't have to ask them to speak to any of their past situations. You can ask them, how are you? And then you can say, listen, this tell people how this experience has impacted you. If you are a non-African American and you want to empathize, you can't empathize if you don't understand. So you would ask, listen, this is how this George Floyd situation has impacted me. I am seriously concerned that I was completely unaware that some of these things are continuing to happen, and I just want to know if you can help me understand maybe what your experience has been, or if you're not comfortable with doing that, help me make sense of what I'm seeing. And I think that is a very natural and honest and open conversation. The microaggressions that you mentioned, I spoke to a little bit, as several of my colleagues did within the context of our town hall. We see many times when you're from an underrepresented group that not even related to the George Floyd situation, but certainly these issues can sometimes be heightened or exacerbated by what happened when there are tragedies like the George Floyd situations. You become more attuned to it or it happens more frequently and it creates more frustration. Or let me say it this way, what I'm about to share with you, you may identify it now much more quickly and more easily than you did before the George Floyd situation. So it heightens your sensitivity, both as one who possibly may be offending an African-American or a person from an underrepresented group or the one who is actually being offended. And that is this. In leadership, it has been my experience in the last 30 years that when you're an African-American or from an underrepresented group, you may have to say something five times when one of your colleagues may say it once, who's a non-African-American. It may be that the very statement that you make is a powerful point or a solution for the organization, but it has to be co-signed from someone from the majority That is very difficult. And people, I don't believe, recognize that it happens as frequently as it happens. But there is another reality that African-Americans can face or people from underrepresented groups can face by those who really, really, truly want to help. And that is those who sometimes have your best interest at heart can move in a very paternalistic way or maternalistic way in treating members of an underrepresented group by believing that they know better what the solutions are to the problems and those people who are actually victims of the system or going through it themselves. And so leaders in any organization who may be non-African American, but who are empathetic to the situation that their colleagues find themselves in and want to do some address structural or systemic change, have to invite the group that is oppressed in as a co-partner in constructing And devising the solution to the problem. Just empathy alone without empowerment leads to further suppression and oppression of the underrepresented groups. It suppresses innovative ideas that have been there for the entire time but have not been heard. It mutes their voices and therefore it can oppress their spirits. So you have to be willing to go beyond the uncomfortable conversation to empowering those who have been disempowered, you have to empower them to actually be a part of constructing the change agenda and certainly to implement the change agenda. People who have gone through this painful experience are looking to move beyond surface level rhetoric toward more impactful and long-term change, which in order to do that requires that there be an empowerment of the disenfranchised.
0: Listening to you lay that out, Travis, I'm thinking, well, my goodness, why wouldn't the underrepresented group, in this case, the African-Americans, be the ones who are spelling out what those new policies or changes need to be? Why are they the ones who are not in the lead there with the pen in their hands?
1: Well, I think that speaks to the lack of equity. Many times, and we were talking about media a little earlier in this industry, those who are in senior management and executive level positions, board positions, are non African American. And so, if there's not an awareness that you need to bring people in and empower them to be a part of this a conversation and empower them with resources and responsibility and shared accountability, then it doesn't go much further than making some sort of a corporate social responsibility statement and branding exercise. So, you know, we have to be willing to take a look at equity. For our industry in public media, I'm on record as saying that the beneficiaries of public media across the country, especially as it relates to educational services, are brown and black. Because those who are getting a primary source of education, who don't attend daycares, etc., are watching PBS programming, that is educational programming that's free and available during the day. I learned how to read watching PBS. On the flip side of the equation, those who are empowered to run and manage PBS at the national and the local levels, less than, I would say, 1% are African-American and senior executive positions. Though the communities that the affiliates may serve are black and brown communities. So that level of inequity creates a barrier of understanding. And so where PBS under its really innovative leadership is grappling with is how to create the dialogue and then how to address this inequity. And I believe that PBS will become a model for the nation. So even though you have an organization whose desire is to serve the needs of the underserved, it has a structural issue, a systemic issue that has to be addressed. And so it makes perfect sense for people of color to be at the table to help construct the change agenda. It just so happens that historically in this country, we have not gone the extra step to make sure that there's balance and equality And that inequities have been rooted out so that when you are trying to implement change, you already have a diversity of thought and opinion and people in position to actually implement the agenda. And so that is the next level of this national conversation. Every industry, every leader who is serious about change is going to have to create a coalition of the willing where we move beyond the tough talk and the difficult conversation towards a real plan of action that empowers people who've been underrepresented and disenfranchised.
0: You mentioned the town hall that you had at Maryland Public Television this week. Have you had discussions on the management
1: team about changes in policies? Yes. and what Yes, yes, we are actually... We're actually doing that deeper dive now. And I'm pleased to say that I believe also that PBS is starting to have those conversations now about how to dig deeper and go to the next level. So the door has opened for us to address some of these issues. And at MPT, we are fortunate in the fact that we have Several African-Americans at the vice president and senior vice president level, unlike many other organizations within the system. So the diversity that we currently have bodes well in us being able to construct an agenda of change and we have thoughtful leadership. That saw early on that we had to be empowered to be at the table to really help to develop the plans to respond to the issues that we're currently facing in our community. And as chief content officer, my point has been if we don't look within first, there's no way that we can be a facilitator of change outside of our building if we're not looking to have the conversations inside of our building. So it's a very sobering moment for us. It is a very powerful moment of opportunity. And I think we're seizing upon the opportunity to effect change as much as we possibly can right now. What is
0: the media industry like right now for young Black professionals?
1: Well, Given the fact that I just turned 50, I like to say I'm still in that young number, but I I will take the question from a different perspective, and I will take a look at those who are emerging within the industry right now. It's a very difficult time, and I think it's difficult. I don't have the numbers to bear this out, but I do know that there was a senior layer of African-American executives, and certainly I know this, there were also a plethora of minority-owned media outlets in every industry, whether it was radio, television, print. And with the convergence of media, and given where we are in economic times, we have seen an erosion of the presence of minority-owned media outlets in this nation, so there are less opportunities. For young African-Americans in non-traditional entrepreneurial environments that may happen to be minority. And that means that their path toward upward mobility goes through a mainstream path. And I think because there's so few African-Americans in senior executive leadership, there is a gap between those who had ascended to the highest levels and those who are trying to ascend to those levels. So African-American young executives are going to have to work harder to develop a professional network of people who are in positions of power who can see their true talent and give them a fair opportunity to demonstrate what they're capable of doing. And I also think that the entrepreneurial zeal within them has to be cultivated because there very well may be a need to create additional new businesses, that are minority-owned and who could be supportive of the content supply chain at every level so that there's a sense of empowerment and control over individual destiny through media ownership. Do you
0: have any advice, Travis, for our young listeners who may still be in college right now or who may have just graduated as to how to navigate this landscape as it exists right now?
1: Yeah, I think they're gonna to have to do three things and three things very well and very consistently. Number one, they're going to have to develop a diverse professional network. They're going to have to develop a network of mentors that are in positions of power who may or may not look like them. But they need a diverse network of people in positions of power to take interest into them, into them right now. They have to do it at every level. At the CEO senior executive level of the industries that they want to go into. They need to build those relationships through reaching out via LinkedIn, letter writing. They need mentorship that can open up doors. That is step number one. Number two, they're going to have to work harder than anybody else in order to get an opportunity. So they're going to have to approach their career path with a level of intensity and zeal that anticipates barriers but hard work can help remove barriers, but hard work alone cannot remove barriers or eliminate the barriers. They can move them, but it won't eliminate the barriers. So they're gonna need help from somebody in their professional network who can actually eliminate a barrier that may be in front of them. And then their hard work can help them navigate around the barrier. So those are point one and point two. The third thing that they have to do is they have to be a student of the current trends in media because media is changing so rapidly. They have to consume what is happening in each industry and be flexible and adaptive enough to figure out how to freshen up their skill sets so that they are not obsolete. You have to stay current with your skills. You have to understand how they will help you navigate the changing landscape of media. And so all three of the points together should lead toward upward mobility. Develop a professional network, number one, that is very diverse in terms of culture and diverse in terms of industry and level of executive authority. Number two, they're going to have to make sure that they are students of the industry, That they are consumers of information and of the trends so that their skill sets are not obsolete. And they have to make sure that they are putting themselves in a position to work as hard as they possibly can to offset or navigate around the barriers that are in front of them. Professional network, hard work. And then be a student of the industry,
0: excellent, thank you so much. I spoke with a few of my former interns, my former T for C interns, Travis, who've since graduated from the University of Maryland's Merrill School of Journalism, and these interns are african American, and they gave me these questions to ask you for a reporter. Who's assigned to cover a racially charged story. How do you recommend they balance their humanity wanting to speak out on behalf of the person or the persons who've been wrong, who's been discriminated against, and the need and responsibility to remain objective as a journalist?
1: I think the most honest answer I can give is to say that it's virtually impossible for you to create a wall between your own experiences and the subject matter that you have to cover. What you can do is be honest that your objective lens is somewhat blurred. And in doing that, you should overcompensate by making sure that you work very hard to have multiple sources on your stories, to make sure that you seek different opinions To inform your story and make sure that on the back end, you disclose any challenges that you may have had to your editor or to your senior producer or someone so that as the story is being finalized, you're able to, as much as possible, identify any of your own bias so that bias could be removed so that it is a report that can stand up under editorial scrutiny. I think it is a practice that I have now. That during these the decisions that I have to make about the programming we put on air, I provided full disclosure where I am in terms of my emotions, my frustration, any personal conflicts or possible conflicts of interest that have occurred in any of the coverage that we're planning have been fully disclosed to my team. And I separate myself from having final editorial authority where I may have undue influence on a story. So this is a time where truth really, really matters. And as a journalist, as a reporter, your job to accurately capture what has happened is necessary in order for us to have an honest dialogue and conversation. I think you have to truly be honest with yourself and disclose areas of challenge and where you're having a conflict. And once you do that, you will have put all the things around you necessary to do your job and to identify any personal conflicts that may prevent you from doing your professional best. That's all anybody can ask you to do. It is very difficult to ask somebody to divorce their personal experiences from the subject matter that they're going to cover when trauma is involved. But you can do the best you can do in identifying and sharing that you may have those inner conflicts and communicate consistently and often before you finalize your report.
0: Great advice, especially for someone starting out in this industry. How can a young African-American quiet the voice of their inner imposter syndrome? This is the way um, this young person described it. Feeling like maybe they don't deserve to be there and feeling alone because there are so many other white faces in the room or in the company.
1: Mm, That's a very great question. And I think you have to hit it two ways. Number one, you may be isolated inside your company, but form an alliance with those who are in a similar position that you're in, who may be in other companies and talk often. That's where organizations like the NABJ and the media organizations, the minority media organizations are very helpful because it helps to eliminate your feeling of isolation. That's very, very important. Now, the way that you break through, it, there are good people in every organization build an alliance with those people over time where you can be safe with and they can be safe with you. Because just because they don't look like you look, they're not African-American or they're not of a minority group or underrepresented group doesn't mean that they can't provide some support for you when you need a sounding board. So developing friendships outside of your inner circle or outside of your culture is very, very important when you're one of the only ones in an organization. That gives you two things. One, it gives you an ability to be authentically who you are because the network with the minority media professional network gives you a chance to be affirmed in who you are and creating a safe space where people accept you for who you are enables you to be affirmed in the midst of an environment where you're the only one. And then last but certainly not least, stay focused on the job at hand. There are some environments that are never going to be the nurturing family environment, the safe place, and they might be downright hostile, but you came to do a job. Don't let anything dissuade you from being successful. And that's why it's important for you to have a support network if much as possible outside of the environment and if possible inside the environment. So when those hostilities come, you can stay focused on performing at your professional best level. Travis, in particular with this question,
0: what I said to this young person, and please tell me if this was the wrong advice, but I said, look, just about anybody who's new in a job, and especially when you're starting out, you do, and especially women tend to feel like an imposter. It sounds to me like it's exacerbated when you're a person of color when you are African-American. Is that a common feeling that you've heard from other young African-Americans? It's like a double whammy?
1: Yes, it's a double whammy. it could be a triple whammy when you factor in economics, because class in professional environments plays a big part in it. So as an executive, there are many times when people wanted to get deals done and have invited me to play golf. Let me tell you why I don't play golf. I don't play golf because the private country club that was in our area of Raleigh, North Carolina, I'm from, Southeast Raleigh, this became a predominantly black area. But the country club was exclusively white. So as a kid, when we would ride our bicycles through the golf course, we thought it was a big park. We didn't know that there were rules. that was We didn't understand that. But I can tell you how many times I had golf clubs thrown at me. I had grown men throwing golf balls at me and calling me the N-word. And I was seven years old when we started. And so I don't care to play golf. I'll watch it, but I don't play golf because I don't feel invited to the club. Now, when you are in an executive gathering and the way that deals are getting done is at the golf club, this issue of being an imposter and feeling isolated is what comes up. So I have learned to be very, very comfortable with sharing with people. I don't care to do business over golf. Let's go over lunch. I don't play golf. I don't have to go into it any more in depth. I'd simply say I prefer to have a meeting over lunch. Now, if my colleagues decide they want to play golf, I'll go with them. I'm just not going to go on the course. I actually like to watch golf. I just don't like the experience on the course. I don't have to get into details of my trauma. I simply choose not to go to a place where I feel uninvited. So when you are faced with these circumstances of isolation, what happens with underrepresented groups, and again, I'm going to add class to this, is you may not be able to relate culturally to what the dominant majority relates to. If you've never been to operas, you can't relate to or talk about operas. So there are themes that could be an impediment. But I have found that simply by sharing your truth and being honest and being open and seeking to develop a relationship with people can help you overcome And I did actually have some colleagues who wanted to help me get some golf lessons and some other things. And I thought that was a nice gesture. I didn't take them up on the lessons, but it certainly helped me become closer to them. So I think you have to be truthful. You have to be honest. And you have to understand that, you know, every new environment is going to present a set of challenges. You're just going to have to put yourself in a position to where you can navigate those challenges by being very honest and very truthful and building a relationship with others that allows you to be safe while you're being transparent.
0: Speaking of navigating challenges, one final question that my former interns have for you, Travis, is whether you have navigated racism in the workplace where you know there are coworkers who are undermining you, let alone not supporting you and how you manage to find a way to still be cordial to them when at the end of the day, you feel like you can't say, screw you. You can't be explicit in how you really feel.
1: So I'm going to share with you a story and forgive me if this is graphic, it's not vulgar, but it gets to the point. A mentor shared with me about how to navigate the corporate landscape and maintain your character. First, Character is what you do to and for other people when they do you wrong. It is what I choose to do and be represents who I am, not my response to who they are. So let me give you a point to a story to bring that. He was a CEO of actually a black hair care manufacturing company. Uh, They were doing hundreds of millions of dollars in business, and he had taken some young African-Americans under his wing. I was one of them who he thought he could impart some wisdom in how to make it inside of a very difficult corporate environment or business environment that at many times could be hostile to young black men. And he shared with me a story about going to Chicago in the fifties and he was walking down the side of a street that Typically, African-Americans, even though it was Chicago, African-Americans would not walk down that side of the street. They would walk on the other side of the street. And two white gentlemen approached him and they said to him, hey, nigger. And he looks at me and he says, he said right back to him, hey. And they were stunned at his response. And then when people ask him, why would you respond to something like that? He said, oh, I wasn't responding to what they call me. I greet every person. I refuse to allow somebody's hatred to cause me to stoop so low to hate them back. So I choose the path of love and peace. I choose to go away from the path of hatred and self-destruction. And so I have tried to use that. Yes, I have been turned down. I have been chosen by search firms and selection committees to be the CEO of a company only to have the president of the hiring body say he wants to go in another direction. And I know exactly why he chose to go in another direction, but that does not diminish who I am. And so I refuse to let other people's ignorance or foolishness cause me to act ignorant or to be foolish. So the way that my anecdote to all of that is to stay focused on delivering excellence despite the obstacles that may be put in front of me. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it doesn't get you discouraged from time to time, but you never, ever quit. And so my resolve is that I will always do and be what I feel like I've been called to do and be with the level of excellence. And I will always operate with a measure of grace and extend grace because I have been given grace. And there are too many people who have been for me that outnumber the too few ignorant people that have been against me. And so to honor them means to celebrate their memory and cherish their contributions and their positive words, which are far more valued than the words, the hurtful words, Or the hurtful actions of those who might try to oppress me. I refuse to give them equal weight.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that, Travis. I would like to pivot now to what you are doing at Maryland Public Television, where you're a senior vice president and chief content officer. What are your responsibilities? Can you kind of break them down for us, take us beyond the words in a job description?
1: Well, I am the type of leader who looks to accomplish my goals by empowering other people. So there's three things that I try to do as chief content officer. Number one is I empower my producers and my creative team. I get an understanding of what they're trying to accomplish, and I try to figure out what can I do to help them. If I create a creative space for them to feel empowered, Then they don't have to worry about me coming in over their shoulders and superimposing my vision on them. I have a global vision of what I'd like to see us do. But the only way for that vision to manifest is to stay out of their creative process and give them the full support to operate with the ability to grow and scale their own products that they are creating or their shows. They must shape them and I will communicate with them what I'm hoping to see on the front side. So number one is empower creative people. That's what I do. And that's whether it's long form, short form, or social media, I empower them to do their jobs. Number two, I look to create a culture of collective brainstorming. I believe in content, especially the way content is created now in the area of social media, the best ideas are not found in an organizational box on the organizational chart. The best ideas are spontaneous and they're in individuals' minds. And so you have got to create an environment where there's a free exchange of ideas and thoughts so that that creative culture is birthed. It establishes a culture where ideas, creative concepts flow freely. So number one, I empower my creative people. Number two, I look to create a culture of innovation and creativity. And then the last thing I do is I take care of the resources. I provide the resources so that the team can do what they aspire to do. And so I'm a very effective partner with our fundraising team. I'm very effective at casting a vision so that it can translate into investment in our creative properties. And I always tie things back to mission. And Maryland Public Television, our mission is to enrich lives and strengthen communities through the power of media. And so I am at work. I've only been there three months now, but my focus is to make sure that across every platform that we are seeking to, with the content that we create, enrich lives and strengthen the community. So we are reaching out and forming alliances and partnerships with the stakeholders across the state and across the DMV region who have a vested interest in our success. And in public media, lastly, I will say I think the role of the chief content officer, unlike commercial media, is that we are the stewards of the public airwaves. The public airwaves do not belong to us. We are stewards of the airwaves that belong to the people. So my goal is to make sure that the platform is available for a diversity of thought and opinion and cultural expressions. And I am a facilitator of those conversations and a steward of the platform, giving people or granting people access as a gatekeeper. And if I do those things, if I empower the team internally and I create a collective brainstorming environment and a culture of innovation, and then I open up the platform to a diversity of thought, opinion, and cultural expression, I will have have helped us live out our mission to enrich communities and enrich people and enrich lives and strengthen communities. And that's what I think the job of a chief content officer is in public media.
0: Could you give us a sense of the types of content that you're creating and how has this renewed focus on racism and racist behavior among the law enforcement community and others changed the programming, the content that you're going to be producing at Maryland Public Television.
1: So I'm proud to say that as a result of the leadership at Maryland Public Television of our CEO, of our entire senior executive team, and then buoyed by the support we received from our town hall forum a few days ago. At MPT, we developed a multi-year campaign called Standing Against Racism, Fostering Unity Through Dialogue, and the new types of content that we're producing. If you look on MPT, you'll see a heavy lineup of content, documentaries, long-form documentaries that really deal with the issues of systemic racism head-on, from health disparities to police reform, social justice, educational disparities. Slavery, and we are putting it out there for full public consumption and debate. We are following up on Monday nights, our primetime lineup with Twitter town hall forums using social media where we're engaging our viewing public with experts on subject matters so that we can continue to have the dialogue. And again, our goal is to foster unity through dialogue, having a safe space to have conversations, and then figuring out how to unearth solutions to some of the very problems that seem to be dividing our nation. The other thing that we're doing is we're using our storytelling capabilities to tell short-form stories that are pointing out what people have done in the past to solve some of these problems and also what can be done now moving into the future. So we're doing a lot of mini documentaries that we will air online and we will push out via social media so that the conversations can continue to happen. We are opening up our platforms to have people from all sorts of opinion. We're hosting other town hall forums on our social media platforms. We're using our production studios to have groups come in and do their own roundtable discussions, and then we're posting them or we're live streaming them because we don't want MPT. We don't want to be the filter for these community conversations all the time. Some of these conversations just need to happen on their own, and we need to use the platform to appropriately broadcast it to the viewing public or distribute it to our social media public so that they can have further debate and further dialogue. We are also looking at launching several town hall forums between now and the end of the year. We are committed to uncovering solutions everywhere we can find them and using a platform for further debate and further discussion. Ultimately, we feel like with this unprecedented approach to opening up all of our platforms for this type of specific and focused conversation, we will have played a part in bringing the issues not only to the forefront, but offering up a heavy dose of prescriptive treatments to solve the problem or to address the disease of racism that runs through the hearts and the veins right now of many in our nation. And so we think that the best way that we can be of support to our community is making sure that the platform is used to shine a spotlight on the problems and also propose innovative solutions where we can find them.
0: Fantastic. Travis, I'd like to flashback really quickly to when you were a broadcast journalism major at Morgan State University. I should also mention that you received the Maryland Governor's Award for Outstanding Service. Yes. You were also a runner-up in the International Newspaper Marketing Association Scholarship Competition, and you were on the honor roll for four years. Did you know what you were going to do when you graduated?
1: I wanted to be an investigative reporter, a journalist. And I actually started with a community newspaper right out of college. It's funny because I never thought I would be in TV. I didn't think broadcast journalists were real journalists. I thought print journalists were real reporters. And so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to also be a publisher of a newspaper, of a magazine. I love the print industry. And of course, things have changed, but I did end up being able to publish my own magazine for a short period of time. And I ended up being a managing editor of several national magazines before I moved over into television. My experiences at Morgan, not only being the editor of the campus newspaper that had been defunct for eight years and we helped bring it back, I learned how to be a publisher of the newspaper and raise money to fund the newspaper. And then I formed partnerships mentorship programs between my reporters and students and professionals, some of which are still friends to this day in the industry. And that's how I trained the Morgan students to help put the paper out. But during that time, Morgan went through a period of student protests. It was 30 years ago. I will send you after this call an email that contains the information. It's very interesting that I'm returning to Maryland 30 years after leading a student protest at Morgan and that given the times of protest that we're in, I learned a lot about leadership during this period of time. Governor William Donald Schaefer was a very popular governor. He was the mayor, former mayor of Baltimore, who ascended into the governor's mansion. And when we were protesting at Morgan, it was on his watch. And what we were protesting was not against Governor Schaefer. It was not against the president at Morgan, Dr. Earl S. Richardson. It was the fact that students at discovered the fact that even under separate but equal laws, Morgan had been historically underfunded for a 40-year period. And some of the things that we were experiencing at Morgan at the time, dilapidated buildings, et cetera, we knew that there was a 25-year blueprint for a complete makeover and renovation of the university. And so what we fought for were changes now that would expedite the renovation schedule. And so we staged a seven-day protest in the administration building with excessive teach-ins where we filled the classrooms in administration building so that actually administrators actually couldn't take a place, take their spaces in their offices. But it was a peaceful protest. We did teach-ins and we educated the Morgan community about what we had discovered as students. And we took our fight to Annapolis and we negotiated with Governor Schaefer head on. So after seven days, we said that if the governor had agreed to expedite the renovation schedule, we would return the university to our administration and we would end our protest. But if he did not follow through on that promise, we would continue our protest. So after returning the campus to our administrators, We reached a place where we discovered that we thought that the governor was stalling. And so I and four other students actually walked from Morgan's campus in Baltimore all the way to Annapolis. And we wore trash bags and we told the governor that since he had trashed his word, we returned his trash to him. And that's how passionate we were. But I got to tell you, there was something that happened during that protest that reminds me of what I'm seeing today. When we were walking 40 miles, it took us 13 hours to walk from Baltimore to Annapolis. We had camera crews following us. And when we got to Annapolis, there was a beautiful sea of people, both Democrat, Republican, white and Black, Asian, Indian, Hispanic, and African-American that had been following our march and greeted us when we got to Annapolis and stayed with us as we spent the night outside. And the next day, the governor had a tourism conference. We were right there. And he pledged to support Morgan on the spot. And later that summer in the Board of Public Works, he honored his word and he ramped up the renovation of on-campus dormitories, which meant that the 25-year blueprint was now enacted. So since that time, we considered our movement as a catalyst for change. Last year, that last building on that plan was completed, and it resulted in $1.5 billion in on-campus renovations. And so because we were 19, because we were 18 and 19 freshmen, sophomores, up through our early 20s, and we were committed to a cause, we were not thinking about change for ourselves. We were thinking about change for the future. And I believe that students have the power to effect change if they really know the power they truly wield. I think students have the power to change industries if they know the power that they wield. I think students have the power to be captains of industry if they know the power that they wield. So there is a power that is within students and young people that is greater than the resistance that they faced and the inertia they faced from those who are already set in their ways. So my encouragement to students is at this ripe old age of 50, I would not be where I am today if I didn't have the courage of my convictions, the support of my fellow students, and the ability to dare to be who I was meant to be. And I will never let anybody rob me of my future. By telling me what I cannot do. I will never, ever let anybody shortcut my destiny by trying to tell me what my destiny is. I know who I was meant to be. And since I was at Morgan, I have focused on accomplishing that goal despite the obstacles that might be in front of me. And so the students who may be listening to this have everything they need to be successful. They've got to use wisdom to learn how to apply the knowledge that they have. They have to build alliances and relationships both within their peer group and outside of their peer group, both within their culture and outside of their culture. But as long as they have a refuse-to-be-denied determination and a willpower that says, I can, I am, and I will, once they form a coalition of the willing, there is nothing that can prevent them from achieving their American dream. I'm surprised you didn't go into politics. I like to cover politics.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for that. Because I want to be respectful of your time, of which you've already given me twice as much as I had asked for, I want to just summarize what Travis Mitchell has done over the last 30 years. After that first job, And I may not hit every single thing, but I just want to give you a sense of the zigs and zags that he has been on. He at one point then became a senior consultant for a company called Between the Lines Communications, which provided TV production, special events, marketing, managing publishing services for clients, then moved into a job as a chief operating officer at the Black Family Channel, which was founded in 1999 as the NBC channel, M as in Major Broadcasting Corporation. And he oversaw the rebranding of the channel into the Black Family channel. He then went to work for a nonprofit. He was the president of the Communities and Schools of Wake, North Carolina, which P.S. I also went from journalism into communications consulting into the nonprofit world. And then he went to work for UNC Television. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So I want to ask you, Travis, I have two final questions that I try to ask all my guests. And you just see the zigs and zags that we can take as professionals and the skill sets that you're honing in those different jobs can apply to different industries. Could you share a time in your professional life, Travis, When you struggled, I mean, really struggled, maybe you even failed at something. I personally was fired twice in my 40s. But the most important thing here is how you persevered, how you got through the other side to show our young listeners that you may fall down. And sometimes those can be the best opportunities that you have because you may end up pivoting into a different direction that ends up being even better. And maybe a lesson that you learned in the process, Travis.
1: I would say this to the students. So at 22, when I graduated from Morgan and after I spent a year as a reporter, investigative reporter, I became the managing editor of four national trade publications out of Baltimore called Career Communications Group. And my first four-way in the TV, was helping to produce a nationally syndicated television show based on the magazines. I then left there to go into media consulting with Between the Lines Communications. And then it was through that that I landed a contract to start producing daily television in Washington, D.C. From there, as you mentioned, I went to grow the, it was NBC Network, and then it became the Black Family Channel. It was owned actually by Evander Holyfield, who was one of the investors at the time. He was headweight champion of the world. Cecil Fielder was a World Series winning New York Yankee baseball player at the time, Marlon Jackson of the famous Jackson family. And then a group of about 30 African-American investors wanted to launch a cable channel that was completely owned by African-Americans to counter program against BET. When I got to the channel, I was 28, I was made Executive Vice President, Chief Operating Officer. We were only available in two markets. I managed affiliate sales, advertising, sports programming. I launched a news division, and I managed also the operations. By the time I left, that channel was available in 31 million homes, 48 states, and 3,600 cities. Ultimately, it was sold to a group that later sold it to Magic Johnson and is currently on the air now as the Aspire Network. After that, I faced failure for the first time. There was a group of radio station owners who wanted to buy a satellite radio network because ABC and Disney were going to get rid of it. And I came in and helped them raise money in about 60 days. We acquired the satellite radio network from Disney. I led the negotiations and the purchase. We purchased the radio network's assets and the 40 plus radio affiliates were able to Maintain their identity. We got off to a fantastic start, but then the internet bubble burst and the economy went in the tank. And so we, my wife and I had invested almost a quarter of a million dollars into it. I was never vested in the cable channel, which was hurtful because I had been promised equity in the cable channel before it sold. And unfortunately, I did not experience a liquidity event. And so this was going to be an opportunity for me to really be successful financially, the acquisition of this radio network as it would have it. We were a year too late in the purchase. And when the market went south, radio got hit the worst. And so my wife and I lost our investment. We were able to salvage some of it and we were able to protect the interests of the shareholders by selling it. And we were able to eliminate debts, but certainly we didn't experience the financial increase we were looking for I had actually by that time been in media for almost 20 years because I started very young and it was time for us to go back home. So we wanted to get back. We were in Atlanta. I was looking for an ability to come back. I was burned out, frankly, of media by then. And I was looking to give back to my community. My uncle in the Wake County, North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina area was the chairman of the school board that helped merge and integrate. The white and the black schools in the 70s and in Wake County, North Carolina, that school district was known as a national model for diversity and integration for the successes that it had as a southern city and southern county versus what was happening across the rest of the country in the early 70s. He became a state senator and he called me when I was in Atlanta and told me he thought I needed to come home. I owed a debt of gratitude to the school system and to a lot of people that had paved the way to make me successful. I took him up on that offer, and I moved back home, and my wife and I came back to the place of our birth. My mother was a principal and a longtime educator, as well as many members of my family. And this organization, communities, and schools that were helping students who were what I call at promise needed a new leader. They were offering after-school tutorial in public housing projects, serving about 200 kids. I thought I could bring my storytelling and bring my media ability and my business ability to the table to help increase the organization's impact or deepen its impact. And so we were able to raise a couple of million dollars, about $4 million. And I was able to scale the organization from serving 200 kids to over 3,000. And we did a lot of innovative, new educational approaches in the seven years that I was the president and CEO. It was through that period of time where I faced my darkest hour coming out of the collapse of that radio network, and I bumped into my most fulfilling desire, and that was to use my gifts, talents, and abilities to invest uh, my time, treasure, and talent in the future leaders of tomorrow. And so that one decision of just giving of myself the best that I had, not perfection, but a willingness to give to others, I believe I was able to sow a seed that produced a future harvest. UNCTV came looking for me because the governor of the state wanted to place somebody on the board of UNC-TV that had media experience. And they knew of my work running my nonprofit. I was known more in North Carolina for my nonprofit work than I was for my TV work elsewhere. And so coming back home to the state of my birth, I was appointed to the board of UNC-TV. And when I joined that board. I joined it for four years. And then a new CEO came in and asked me to help him reimagine UNC TV by helping co-chair his board committee to help effect change at the station to be more relevant locally. And so one move when it appeared that I was at my darkest hour, the old adage holds true. The darkest moment of the day it's right before sunrise. And that one decision that I made to press on, to give of myself despite the failure, set me up for what I'm doing right now. And so from UNCTV, I stepped off the board. My CEO asked me if I would head up content, and I agreed. And I spent two and a half years at UNCTV. I was a finalist to be the CEO there. And It didn't happen. I finished as the top recommended candidate for the position, and they decided to offer it to someone else. But I didn't let that stop me. And then Maryland Public Television was looking for a senior vice president, chief content officer, which has brought me back full circle to a state that I love. And I'm close to family members. My daughter's at Morgan. And it's a great joy to return home after 30 years after I graduated. Morgan State University. So my life is not a life without twists and turns. I learned more through failure than I have through success. And what I learned through failure is that I had a resolve that I didn't realize was there earlier in my career, that I could face challenges head on. And as long as I believed in myself and I believed that there were greater days ahead, that I could be successful no matter what endeavor, no matter what industry that I was going into. And so I am grateful for the twists and turns in my career. I'm grateful for the setbacks. Every setback is a setup. Every trial is a triumph and every roadblock becomes a roadmap to those who are focused on achieving their destiny.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. Travis, thank you so much for sharing that incredible story with us.
1: You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
0: I just have one final question to ask you. If you could go back to Morgan State and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I would have enjoyed my friends more. I would have spent more time building my network with my friends and with other students on other campuses who didn't look like me. And I would have deepened my professional network even more. And so I can't get that time back, but I seek to do it now through active involvement with my other alma mater, which is the University of Pennsylvania. I stay active with our alumni association with Morgan's alumni, and I would just cherish the moments.
0: That is just wonderful. Travis, I want to thank you so much for this marathon time for coffee session our listeners don't know you have given me over 2 hours of your time you have shared so much wisdom i just there is so much in here for young people and i hope they soak it up take it in and bring it with them through the rest of their lives thank you so much travis and wish you and your family a wonderful Father's Day this weekend. Actually, I should just be wishing you a wonderful Father's Day and continued success in
1: all that you do. Well, I really appreciate you affording me the opportunity to share. And I really believe in this conversation and what you're doing. And I'm here to support you and share any information I can with your students that you think might be able to help them. So continue on this path. I think it's going to have a tremendous impact in the lives of young people and I applaud your efforts.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7 no matter where you live.